Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. I, I, people give me tons of um, ideas on this one. I keep reading new, you know, psychological theories and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was under pressure, I was a little bit tired, or I was lonely, or I fell down the stairs when I was a child, or whatever. Um, You're no picnic, all right? You're a spoiled little brat, even. But under that, you're the most amazingly, astounding, wonderful girl, woman that I've ever known. Party on, Wayne. Party on, girl. Hello, and welcome back to Bell Again by the Long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. To start this episode of Bell Again by the Long 1990s, I've reserved the right to read back the quote that inspired this week's episode, which comes from the esteemed critic Vanilla Ice's Twitter page this week. The 90s were the best. We didn't have coronavirus or cell phones or computers. We had 5.0s. M, is that right? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, oh, to be honest, I don't know, but I do know that it's a car that he's referring to there. Okay. Blockbuster, Beavis and Butthead, Wayne's World, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. Mortal Kombat is still better than Fortnite. The last of the great decades. End quote. We've spoken a lot about feminism on this podcast and specifically what we call white lady feminism. And inspired by Vanilla Ice's opinions, we thought that we'd spend this episode and these three instalments talking about men and masculinity and particularly white masculinity in the 1990s. That's right. And it is it is quite a, a strange feeling, I think, to be affirmed in our kind of historical and theoretical choice to focus on the 1990s by Vanilla Ice, who described the 90s as, as the last of the great decades. But I think the reason that we were kind of struck by this quote, this Vanilla Ice quote, Chloe, of all things, is because it is it, it does describe the 1990s in such a, a male way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this is, a, this is an, an angle that we're going to come at is definitely from outside of that, just by the fact of having grown up as, you know, small girls in the 1990s. I mean, my, my experience of the cultural references that Vanilla Rice is, um, is describing here is actually my two older brothers uh, fly-kicking me a lot in emulation of their hero, Jackie Chan. I don't know about you, Em. No, I, that's not an experience um, I can share with you, I think, but that's, that's a kind of interesting approach, I think, to 90s masculinity because we've said very specifically that we're talking about white masculinity and I think Jackie Chan in that quote really stands stands out purely because you know that's that's outside of that kind of very white very male frame that Vanilla Ice is bringing and I think I, I've been kind of struck by that too about the the kind of whiteness of, of 90s masculinity because last weekend I somehow caught part of the film Armageddon on free-to-air tv which as uh, you know, as people might know, is a, a 1998 film about a, an asteroid that's coming towards Earth, and the star of the film, Bruce Willis, ends up saving the planet from from this asteroid. And and I think Armageddon, you know, it comes it comes much later in the decade, but it also embodies this kind of 90s white masculinity, which is, you know unproblematically heroic it is american it is so american you know there are there are quotes in that film about being kind of deep blue heroes and and america coming to save the world um and specifically in armageddon in contrast with a kind of 
weak, um, almost effeminate and, and crazy Soviet masculinity because they go and rescue this um, cosmonaut who's been, who's been stuck on a kind of rusty Soviet um, space station for a long time. You know, the Americans sweep in with their, their new technology and their, and their st- strong heroes. And, and I think that really struck me because so much of what we talk about when it comes to the 90s, so many of our major cultural touchstones are focused on white men. You know, Bruce Willis is the star of Armageddon, of course, and, and we open the decade with Die Hard 2. You know, Bruce Willis is famous because of the film Die Hard. We've got Die Hard 2 in 1990, then Die Hard with a Vengeance in 95. And Bruce Willis also stars in Pulp Fiction in 1994. Is Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction? He is. He is in Pulp Fiction. He he plays a boxer and has a um, yeah particularly interesting story arc in in that film. And Pulp Fiction, I think, is also you know it also embodies a, a, a kind of similar, I suppose, nineties masculinity um, that is deeply American, and it's also, of course, deeply violent. Uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, who who wrote and directed Pulp Fiction, is a creature of the 1990s. That's when he he breaks through with his his filmmaking career with Reservoir Dogs in in 1992. And again, you know, uh, I think Pulp Fiction is a is an iconic film of the 1990s, but it's also a very male film. You know, of course there are the women in these films, but the women are in as in all Tarantino films, largely peripheral, and they are subjects in need of protection. Um, and and care from their male counterparts, who are the centre, who are undoubtedly the centre of the story. So I think that's kind of what we're getting at in our in our discussion of masculinity in the 1990s. And I think there's definitely much more to be said about that aestheticisation of mas- of violence and masculinity in the 1990s, particularly when we get to talk about some films that were very big in the late 1990s, which is perceived as a moment of crisis for white, all-American masculinity. But, of course, as well as these action heroes, the 90s also saw the rise of a particular kind of floppy-haired pretty boy. And I'm going to turn over to your expertise on this, Emma, you being our expert in all things American and all things floppy-haired. Yes, that is my uh, special subject. And I think, you know... our personal motivations, like Chloe's experience with with Jackie Chan and her big brothers aside, like our our own experience of the 1990s lies much more with this kind of 90s pretty boy than it does with a, a 90s action hero. You know, I certainly wasn't allowed to watch Pulp Fiction until much later, of course, because it is so violent. So I think I think you're right, Chloe, that for us, the 1990s, and I imagine a lot of our, our generation, particularly women of our generation, popular culture coming out of America is dominated by the American pretty boy. And of course, I'm talking about um, actors like Brad Pitt, who who comes to international fame with his role in Thelma and Louise in 1991. Um, but I do think like I, I was maybe a little bit young for Brad Pitt. I'm not sure about you, Chloe. Yeah, I, I, look, I was four in 1991. I was definitely too young for that. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, Legends of the Fall in 1994, uh, I think does ha- play a, have a special part in my my memory. But I think about Brad Pitt's a kind of, I guess, the start of that, of the, the rise of the pretty boy in the 1990s. I'm thinking particularly of men like Keanu Reeves, you know, the kind of floppy haired pretty boy who's also a bit, of course, when we're talking about Keanu Reeves in the 90s, we're talking about somebody who's a bit silly. But Keanu then gets kind of, I guess, more serious with films like Point Break in 91 and then Speed in 94, which of course he stars in alongside Sandra Bullock. The other pretty boy that comes to my mind, of course, is Johnny Depp in a favourite film of mine um, called Crybaby 
which has a kind of 19, it's a 1950s musical throwback. It is extraordinary. Highly recommend. I've never even heard of it. And I thought I knew musicals. Oh my God, Chloe, you're going to love it. I'm so excited to introduce you to Crybaby. <laughs> um, the same year that Johnny Depp does Crybaby, he also does Edward Scissorhands. So this is 1990. And again, you know, uh, mysterious, um, kind of very pretty young men with gorgeous hair who were kind of deep and, and brooding and interesting in the case of Edward Scissorhands, extremely interesting. And then Johnny Depp goes on to star, of course, in What's Eating Gilbert Grape in 1993. And am I right in thinking that that brings us to the ultimate pretty boy? It sure does. So, so alongside Johnny Depp in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, there is, of course, a very young Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, So Gilbert Grape is his breakthrough film. He gets an Oscar nomination for this film in 1993. And then he goes on three years later to do the Romeo and Juliet film alongside Claire Danes, um, directed by Baz Luhrmann, which was released in 1996. Gotta say, I have been listening to the soundtrack, uh, the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack a few times in preparation for this episode. It's it's pretty great, but not as good as his next, his next breakout role. Is that right? (laughs) That's right, with a also particularly iconic soundtrack, as much as you don't like that word, Chloe. So Leo's already pretty famous because of Romeo and Juliet, because he is, you know, he is an extraordinary actor, I think it has to be said, um, but he's also extraordinarily beautiful in that film. And then Titanic comes the year later in 1997, and that is what makes him a truly global superstar in, the, in a real kind of 1990s sense of the term. So Titanic, which he stars in alongside Kate Winslet, um, I think it kind of encapsulates the the just total cultural dominance of the United States in the late 1990s. And we've spoken about this a lot. Of course, you know, the United States is the global superpower in this time. But, you know, that's not just militarily. That is cultural as well. It's extraordinary cultural dominance. So Titanic in 1997 um, at that date is the most expensive film ever made. And it's the first film to gross one over a billion dollars, which in 1990s terms is kind of even more significant than it than it would be today, and I think it's now it's now grossed over two billion dollars. In 1997, it's uh, apparently um, the first film to reach number one basically in every single country that's showing films at the time. So so Titanic is a smash hit in places like communist China, right? So this is this is the extent of the dominance, and Leo is at the front of that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I, I mean, it's kind of a segue away from away from Leo, but it's interesting to think about Titanic as this massive cultural event when the numbers you're talking about and the the sort of penetration into global markets that you're talking about that's perfectly ordinary and that's even something that's expected of a Hollywood blockbuster these days. Like I, I mean, you wouldn't be you're not surprised you kind of expect that an Avengers film or anything coming out of Marvel Studios will have, will be number one in the worldwide box office, will be making, you know, billions upon billions of dollars. That's kind of, it's an expectation to the point of that's what studios need to survive right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you're right. You know, films today, those kind of big blockbuster films are regarded as failures if they don't do that. Mm. And, and I think Titanic is kind of, is, is one of the first films to set that expectation. You're no picnic. All right, you're a spoiled little brat even. But under that, you're the most amazingly astounding, wonderful girl, woman that I've ever known. And- Jack, I- no, no, Let me try and get this out. You're, you're a mate. 
I'm not an idiot. I know how the world works. I've got ten bucks in my pocket. I have nothing to offer you, and I know that. I understand. But I'm too involved now. You jump, I jump, remember? I can't turn away without knowing you'll be all right. That's all that I want. You know, as you say, Chloe, this is... This is something very new in the 1990s. This is extraordinary. And, uh, and and nobody seems to have really expected it with this film in particular, especially because, you know, going back to it and watching it, it's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> oh, look, I can't say I can't say I've watched it for, for many, many years, probably because it, it isn't great, but it is a, it's an event, it's a phenomenon, it's something that is worth talking about. So moving on from Titanic, what else did Leo do in the 90s? So he actually didn't do a whole lot for the rest of the 1990s. He did, I'm not sure if you remember, um, you know, we're historians, so we probably should be engaged in this kind of film, uh, The Man in the Iron Mask, which I came out in I do remember The Man in the Iron Mask, and I do remember The Beach, which mostly because of the All Saints song, Pure Shores, which was on the soundtrack. To be honest, I was so little for most of these these films that my only real acquaintance with them was through their soundtracks. So I am playing a bit of catch up here. Look, I think that's fair enough. And I don't think it's really worth revisiting um, films like The Beach. You know, they, they weren't great films, but they did make huge amounts of money purely because of the fact that Leo was in them. You know, he, he became this kind of a singular global juggernaut. And then after this, I think he do, he does kind of a I guess I suppose a rethinking of of his career, and he very very soon after that, in the kind of two thousands, he basically hooks up with Steven Spielberg and and goes on to make a series of extraordinary blockbusters, and he he basically becomes the it guy. You know, everybody wants Leo in their films because he's an extraordinary actor, but also just purely by the fact of having him in your film, you will have a global smash hit. You know. Um, I actually read an interesting article, you know, as, as it is kind of quite extraordinary to be in a position to be doing serious historical research on Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm amazed that I've managed to do this. But anyway, he, I read this really interesting article that was, that was basically arguing that Leo is kind of the only real global superstar who's left. He's the only one not to have done, you know, you mentioned Avengers films, Chloe. He's the only one really of that era to not have done a kind of superhero or, or comic book films. You know, he, he kind of makes choices about the character acting that he's going to do, which, you know, maybe is a bit unfair to, to someone like Brad Pitt. But I do think it, it is true that Leo kind of is a, is a singular figure. And he was made in the 1990s. And would it be fair to say that amongst, you know, those those celebrities and the celebrity white celebrity men he's one of the few who hasn't gone through any major scandal like i mean how is his you know how is his how is his ethical reputation stood up well i think in large part his ethical reputation is is quite good and that's that is partly because you know he he again he kind of encapsulates the the 1990s and is is emblematic of, of white American cultural dominance and individualism because he also engages in a very 1990s, especially early on in his career, um, form of liberal, liberal celebrity environmentalism. Okay, so, this, so I'm starting to see a kind of the background to Emma's fascination with Leo, which seems to be some, something between floppy hair and his passion for environmental causes. So tell me more about that. Oh, how embarrassing. It's true. Um, so Leo, he actually established something called the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation in 1998. Um, so his philanthropy begins very early in his career. And it is a, a different kind of philanthropy, I think, to most of this kind of celebrity environmentalism, because he does actually fund legitimate 
research. You know, it's not as much as the foundation is named after him. He does dish out tons of money to legitimate researchers and, and kind of lifts up research as I suppose, as a priority. He's also on the board of a bunch of environmental organisations, including things like the World Wildlife Fund, the Natural Resources Defence Council. And if you, you know, if you check in his Instagram, it's kind of filled with environmental messages and things like that. And he actually, I actually came upon his celebrity environmentalism in my own PhD research because he weirdly wrote the introduction to this book of photographs on Antarctica, which was aiming to draw attention to global warming, which also includes a contribution from Gorbachev. Okay. Yeah, so, so weird and so random. And he is like, he is best mates with kind of all of the prominent environmentalists that you can think of, especially American ones, he's, he has worked with. So, so, um, you know, people like John Kerry and Al Gore, he's kind of right in with that and that movement. And I think that, you know, Chloe, you asked me about has Leo had any scandals, you know, the scandals with which we are very familiar when it comes to stars of the 1990s. I think this kind of gets at that because I think in both of his, both his acting and his philanthropy, his friends, like the, the people that he works with, the people that he obviously respects, seem to have one thing in common, um, which is that they're all men. You know, I, I, maybe Kate Winslet being the the exception. They're great mates, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They they and they've worked together a number of times and seem to have a, a, a quite amazing rapport as actors together. But I do think that that Winslet stands out in that because that seems to be the only time that happens. The rest of the time, he is working almost exclusively with men. Tell me about the graph because there is kind of a notorious uh, and highly scientific graph about Leonardo's dating life that goes and circulates on social media from time to time. There is, and it, it is amazing, and I, and it's very much connected to what I was just saying. So so the graph is uh, it's Leo's age, you know, as he ages, mapped against the age of the women that he dates. And it's, it's very clear from that scientific research that Leo only ever and has only ever dated women who are under the age of 25, which, you know, was fine when he was 25, but he is now 45. And that was fine when you were under 25 and not married. <laughs> That's right. It's got nothing to do with my own personal resentment at, at being over 25. But I think it is, you know, whilst there's nothing... Um, you know, as far as we know publicly, there's nothing untoward. You know, I'm not. I'm not suggesting there was no, there was anything non-consensual about this. It is pretty gross. Like when you think about it, that he's 45 and he he just obviously is is only attracted to women who are 20 plus years younger than him. Like gross. Or he is in a position of enormous privilege, whereas most 45 year old men would not be um, necessarily attractive to women who are under the age of 25. That is very true, Chloe. <laughs> very good way of putting. I'm trying to think of a, a capitalist metaphor for Leonardo's, Leonardo's. I don't know the capital, the the resources of Leonardo's abiding good looks and not to say his enormous wealth. Um, so that does kind of it does set him apart from a lot of those '90s heartthrobs who you've just mentioned. I mean, for instance, Johnny Depp. He is a hugely problematic figure to say the least these days. Uh, Tarantino has come in for a lot of criticism. Um, I think there have been some accusations against him because of his, you know, the, the violence of his films extends to his behaviour towards women who he's working with. Uh, Keanu, has he has he survived? No, Keanu, I think, is one of the rare exceptions to this rule. Again, he's um he is 
well, he seems like he's an amazing guy. Like, I, you know, I'm seeing him on Twitter out at Black Lives Matter protests, um, and but not trading in his celebrity to do that, just, just kind of being a regular guy who is out there protesting in support of these movements. So Keanu is, again, I think maybe the exception that kind of proves the rule. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to say that this isn't about us, um, I suppose, trying to cancel people or, or whatever you want to call it. It's about us reflecting on the, this era of masculinity and a, and a particular form of masculinity that I think was formative for us and, and a lot of people of our generation because culture at this time is dominated by men telling stories about men. So, of course, there are exceptions, but when we're talking about, you know, the highest grossing films of the, of the decade potentially ever – and, and one of the most famous um, and most sought-after Hollywood stars. Again, this is men talking about men. So it's it's DiCaprio working with men like Scorsese and, and Baz Luhrmann. And these men are characterised by their kind of brooding nature. They're beautiful, but they're flawed. Um, and they're the centre of everything. They, they These men and, you know, their characters and, and their, their actual persons, they are the one to be cared for. They're the ones that need rescuing. And they're always forgiven, you know, for, for these slip-ups. Whereas women of the 1990s, you know, if you think about somebody like Winona Ryder, don't get that kind of freedom. You know, they don't get forgiven for their slip-ups, whereas men do. And I think, you know, in that as well, um, these men, these particular kinds of men are in the 1990s and I suppose today, they're, they're ultimately unobtainable for women. You know, women are never good enough um, and they're always peripheral in the stories. But I suppose, you know, I, I have, I certainly know I have a tendency to universalise an American experience, you know, as, a, as much as America is the cultural hegemon at this time, of course, other things are happening, albeit always connected to America. And and that's why I think in the next instalment of this episode, we are going to, um, as we like to do, kind of cross the Atlantic and talk about one of Chloe's favourite, um, I guess, surprisingly unproblematic stars of the 1990s, and that is Hugh Grant. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 